Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Chris McDaniel, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio in St. Louis, Jason Rosenbaum. And joining us from Jefferson City is... Marshall Griffin. Marshall, thanks for joining us. Joe is... Sailing on the Rhine or whatever river there is in Germany, so... somewhere She's somewhere better than we are because we are currently in rainy St. Louis. It is monsoon. Or, or rainy Jefferson City. It is monsoon. Yeah, it, rainy and stormy Jefferson City, unfortunately. <laughs> and Joe is laughing at us while she's on vacation. And looking at castles, and according at to castles. Twitter. <laughs> but we should have a good show, even though Joe's not here. Yes. We're going to get to a few topics. We're yeah. going to talk a little bit about 2014, uh, what the marquee races are, and what some of the implications are going to be. We're going to get to Medicaid after that. Uh, what's been going on and if it w- if it's going to go anywhere. And we're also going to talk a little bit about the gun nullification bill. What were you going to say, Jason? I was going to say, you might notice we don't have a, a guest. We are taking a, a brief uh, hiatus from guests since we've had two straight weeks of two guests. We want to, like, inform you with our monotone slash smooth, buttery voices as opposed to an, uh, we gotta get to the one. news. Yeah, got to get to we're the news. We're our own guests, in other words. Yes. Yes. So, but but yes, 2014. Um, I, I I think it's going to be it's one. it's going to be real hot, right? With um, you know, no that that <laughs> auditors race, Jason. Don't you think it's going to be pretty contentious this well, year? Well, I think the most uh, the, th- the thing that people are going to be looking for in that race is whether the Libertarian candidate or the Constitution Party candidate gets more votes. I think that is the one thing to watch for that. It, it's going to be neck and neck between those two. Neck and neck for 10% of the vote right there. If they get 10% of the vote, that's pretty good. Well, it might open up a chance for a write-in as well. <laughs> Maybe you, Marshall. <laughs> no. <laughs> but but the reason I think we're, we're joking about this is for the first time in decades, if not several centuries, the, the yeah. Democrats have not put up a candidate for, for state auditor. And, you know, there was a Democratic candidate at the beginning, Jay Swearingen of North Kansas City, but he dropped out. Right. And um, and is not he's not running for reelection either. So I think he just might be leaving Missouri politics for the time being or running for something else. But, you know, I, I think it was always going to be an uphill climb to take on Schweik. He had a pretty substantial war chest, I think over six hundred or seven hundred thousand dollars of cash on hand. There are Democrats out there who have substantial cash on hands, and I listed yeah. five of them in an article a few months ago. But the upshot is none of them want to take a chance against running against an incumbent statewide down-ballot officer when their chances of winning are just not typically high. I've said this many times, but it is very difficult to defeat a down-ballot statewide official, and obviously— it's yeah. it's it's not it hasn't never happened because, because Schweik that's how Schweik won, got into office. Yeah, but it's rare because it's hard to like make argumentations against them, and it's hard. especially something like auditor where most of the time it's not a very you know Schweik hasn't done anything controversial really that a Democrat could really rally against since the auditor's position. It was tough. And I mean, even when he was running against Susan Monty in 2010, I mean, what was thrown against her was you know not as explosive as other races because right. it they're, i mean these it's these the offices are, are are serve in many ways a utilitarian role and unless you really screw up and do something that is super controversial 
I mean, the chances of you getting attacked for it for something that's going to cause you to get to lose reelection, are, I think, are generally pretty low. But I think that people like me who watch these types of things expected at least like what I call a sacrificial lamb candidate, like somebody who would just file would probably lose, but you but know would make him spend a significant amount of yeah, money. You know, somebody or, or at least some money. And, but the, the fact that that. Nobody has done it. Um, has nobody has filed against him? I just think, first of all, it takes away the the only statewide race from being interesting or coverable. I mean, just yeah. just to be uh, greedy for a second as a journalist. But I think there are other implications for this as well. Well, before we get into some of the implications from this, there was a, a Politico article talking about what this says about Missouri Democrats and what it says specifically about their bench. Did you see this? I did from my uh, Mizzou classmate, Juana yes. Summers. Yes. yes. So what did you think of that? Did you think that it, that it resonated? Um, well, I know that Democrats were mad about it. I saw on yes. Twitter. And I think that they pointed out that, you know, Democrats have a two-term governor and a two-term treasurer and Jason Kander and all these people. But right. I do think it says something that you know, the Democrats did have people who could run against Schweik and I think would have made him work for it. People yeah. like, you know, I, I didn't think that Clint's wife would get in, for example. I think that would probably be something that would be a little too risky for someone who's maybe looking at 2016. But the people that I listed, Scott Sifton of Afton, Darlene Green, the city of St. Right. Louis comptroller, um, you know, John Wright, that state representative from Roachport who has self-funded almost $500,000 for a state rep race. Now, all those people would have been able to have the resources and be able to run credible campaigns, and they decided not to do it. So I don't know if that means they don't have a bench, but I do think it it, 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 it does say something about risk advertisement. Yeah. I think that's what it says. The article that really kind of got my attention was Steve Kraske's Kansas City Star article that came out on Friday, and it was making the argument that by giving Schweik a pass, the Democrats are actually engaging in some sort of strategy to make Schweik stronger against Catherine Hannaway, and in actuality, it's it's a good thing for the Democrats. And I think that that argument has been made before. Joe actually mentioned it. It, it was on our podcast, And I think actually. Joe actually asked Catherine Hannaway about it. And I, I liked the article, and I thought it was an interesting way of thinking, but I wanted to kind of bring a counter question to that and just thinking about short term in this year, because yeah. there's been a big emphasis by Claire McCaskill and Chris Coster that they need to do better in the legislature. So how does it help Democratic efforts to get more Senate seats or more House seats if you leave somebody with $700,000 of cash on hand to either give money to other candidates or direct his fundraisers to give them money. Right. I mean, I, I, yeah, the argument has been put forth, well, maybe he'll save that money for, you know, 2016. But if he gives $200,000 of that away, he's going to be able to get that back pretty easily. Sam yeah. Fox has given him $100,000 donations several times. And I just think that for all the hullabaloo about Coster giving $200,000 to the House and Senate candidates, not only do you have Schweik, but you have all these state Senate candidates who were opposed in 2010 and you know 2012 who were unopposed too. Brian Munzlinger, Bob Dixon, Dan Brown, all of them faced pretty reasonably competitive races in 2010, 
two of them even beat incumbent Democrats, completely unopposed. Those people are going to give money to candidates, too. I just don't see how this is beneficial towards that goal. 2016 is another story. But again, if you're if you're thinking short term, I'm not sure how this is good for the Democrats on any level. Marshall, what do you think about this? Yeah, well, that does. It makes sense to me as well. Um, my most of my uh, most of my in-depth studies and coverage are about what they're doing once they're in office as opposed to trying to get uh, reelected or, or back into office. But I, I will tell you, it, uh, it would it at least makes it a little bit easier for um, for them, especially uh, Munzlinger and uh, Dan Brown, to focus on their job at hand here as opposed to having to you know divide their time between um, you know how they're going to raise money and how am I going to get this piece of legislation passed? Uh, at least it frees them up a little bit in that respect, and that that's got to be good for um, you know at least the working relationship of uh, elected Republicans here in Jefferson City. And, and, and I want to mention why I mentioned Munzlinger and single him out in particular because I have covered Missouri politics not necessarily before you know Joe was born or whatever, but for about eight years. And I remember a time when Northeast Missouri was still. A Democratic stronghold. It was one of the last rural outposts of strength for the party. Now, flash forward eight years, which is 2006 when Wes Schumeyer beat Bob Bain in, in one of the most expensive state Senate races in history in Northeast Missouri. And you now have a relatively similar yet Republican-leaning, more after redistricting, where the incumbent Republican doesn't even have an opponent. Some of the other Northeast Missouri reps don't have an opponent. And you have the possibility, uh, if everything falls into place and, and that uh, Ed Schieffer's seat goes Republican, of the Republicans having a complete, utter domination of that region. And if you're talking about building a party and building legislative strength, I just don't know how not putting a candidate against those people helps you. Maybe it conserves money for the races we're about to talk about, you know, Jeff Coe yeah. and, and St. Louis County. But I think it, it, it's just very risky. I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm reading this wrong, but I, I just don't think strategically this is beneficial in the long run, or, or at least in the short term. Maybe in the long run. Well, let's talk about some of those some of those Senate races and some of those House races that mm. we're going to be looking forward to in 2014. Yes. One of those is the Shoop seat, mm-hmm. where she has raised a significant amount of money mm-hmm. with the help of Coster. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you mentioned, Jason, a lot of that can be undone if. You know, there are a significant amount of Republicans who aren't facing challenges who can help out whoever the Republican nominee happens to be. Now, I wrote about this race on Monday, and I want to make a couple of caveats here. First of all, who we've we've had Jill Shoup on our show before, and I've said to her face, and I'll say her when she's not here, she's she's a very strong candidate for that seat. She has a history of of winning elections against you know you know credible opponents. She's raised a pretty good amount of money, and this, the, the seat leans Democratic. So you gotta, you got to give her her due there that she's going to have some inherent advantages there. And the other thing is there's a three-way Republican primary, which probably doesn't help Republicans that much. Yeah. But on the other hand, because there are so many Republican senators who are either not running this cycle or who are unopposed this cycle, I actually added up – the, their cash on hand, and it was around $1.8 million. And that doesn't include someone like Dave Schatz, who has raised $525,000, which includes loans. So he may not spend that money or give money to other people. 
in just the last month. So that could mean that whoever wins that primary could just instantly have $500,000 immediately. And you see a situation with uh, Jack Spooner, who's a, an attorney. He's not Jay Ashcroft, who's getting most of the attention. He's raised about $80,000 in the last week or two since he started a, a MEC committee. So, you know, that's, again, sort of the sort of thing that would happen. But that's going to be a very competitive race. And I, I think even with a well-funded Republican, Shoup is going to have a lot going for her. Um, and, and obviously the other one is what I like to call the battle for Jeffco, which is between uh, Jeff Orta and, and Paul Weiland. Um, I, I picked that by default as the most competitive general election contest, which I think just says a lot about how <laughs> just of a bust this election cycle is. Because going back to 2006, uh, the 22nd District in Jefferson County it was it was at the time held by a Republican, Bill Alter, and Ryan McKinnon ended up knocking him off pretty easily. It was kind of an assumed, you know, result that, you know, Republicans weren't going to win that seat. And now it's the most competitive seat in the entire election. I think I think it's not only a testament that Jefferson County is more competitive, but it's just that there's not much there, you know. Yeah. But we'll still be covering it because we're, we're bored, I guess. Well— that's led a lot of people to say that what the marquee and what the important issues are going to be are actually ballot initiatives. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're going to have to talk about that another week, but that's definitely something to keep your eye on. And that's something where we'll have a better idea of what the ballot initiatives are in the weeks to come. Yes, I've already yammered on too long about candidates, so <laughs> well, <laughs> don't want to bore people to death. So, Well, let's get to something else. Medicaid. Marshall, what's what's going on with Medicaid expansion, Medicaid reform, where you're well, reporting? Well, the, the, um, there is a little bit of a push uh, to come up with a Medicaid expansion slash reform package that that uh, Republicans might be able to accept. That's that's the goal. That's the 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 that's the objective. Uh, is this Ryan behind Silvey's these approach? Particular bills. Hmm? Is this Say Ryan Silvey's? Yes, we are. Yeah, Ryan Silvey's, um, who um, he came out with a, a bill that he has not been filed yet because the deadline for filing new re- legislation has already passed in the Senate. So um, the only way that this could uh, get onto a bill is by amendment, and that's uh, what uh, he is considering at this point. I actually talked to Senator Silvey about uh, a few minutes ago uh, regarding his bill. Uh, what, you, you were going to ask something? Yeah, tell tell me a little bit about the bill. What would it What would it be like? Uh, basically, it would combine. It would uh, raise Medicaid to 138 uh, percent, not the 100 percent that uh, Representative Jay Barnes' bill uh, would have done last year. Uh, Senator Sylvie's bill would go up to 138 percent. It would um, combine uh, free market reforms, also um, making um, making use of uh, the the federal exchange uh, to provide some coverage, and uh, with the goal of uh, of doing some type of reform or excuse me some type of expansion that would bring about reforms and what's uh, been touted as a Missouri solution or a Missouri solution uh, a Missouri <laughs> depending solution. on uh, who's doing the talking uh, but uh, but uh, Sen- Senator Sylvie uh, put out a um, I believe a, an op-ed piece recently where he yeah. said we can't, we can't just keep saying no to expanding Medicaid without you know coming up with some type of alternative without some type of uh, reform package. We can't just continue to say no and do nothing else. 
And so this is his answer to um, to what can what he hopes can be done. It's J- some, it is somewhat similar to what uh, Ryan Torpy, or excuse me, Noel, Noel Torpy, Torpy. Yeah. is uh, is sponsoring in the House. Jason and I talked a little bit about this before we got on air, um, and perhaps unsurprisingly, um, Sylvie's bill, or I guess we can't call it a bill yet, or his ideas are already facing some some struggles, uh, particularly from some of the conservative uh, members of the party. Jason, is there is there any conceivable way that it could happen this session? This session, probably not. Um, eventually. Eventually, possibly. And yeah. I think that something like what Sylvie and Torpy are, are, are proposing will be part of the solution. I don't think that the Republicans are going to take up a Medicaid expansion that Nixon wants or what Democrats want and pass it. I think the chances of that are zero. Yeah. I do think, though, that they would potentially pass a quote-unquote transformation or reform bill, which is essentially expansion, but just making a whole bunch of changes to Medicaid. I mean, let's just cut yeah. the, the, the gibberish there. That's what it is. It's still kind of bringing the same goal, but just making a lot of changes to how the program works. But I don't think, I, and I've said this so many times that people are probably sick of me saying this, but I don't think alone that could really help. Yeah. I, I really think that the best way for them to go forward is First of all, you're, there are going to be Republicans that are going to filibuster this no matter what, and they are going to be inconsolable. So you're going to have to you know, have one or two of those left before that comes around. So you might have to wait for John Lamping and Brad Lager to leave the Senate and be replaced by other people. Yeah. And then there are still obstacles. You still have um, people who are going to be there next year. Ed Emery still going to be there. Dan Brown, who has no Democratic opponent, as I mentioned, he said he would filibuster this. And I'm sure there will be others as well. And and obviously, and there's Rob Schaff. Yes. And he's probably the most ardent and able filibuster-er of all. And I, I mean, he is facing a, a, a contested election. I wouldn't say that he's necessarily a shoo-in for re-election because that area is not super Republican. But he has never won. He has always won his elections by at least like 55 percent or above. And that includes his Senate race in 2010, which signals to me that the chances of him not winning his election are are very low. I think he will, he is favored for reelection. So what I wrote a few weeks ago and what I've been saying on this show and other shows is he has specific ideas about, you know, access, transparency, and just the way hospitals are regulated and confirmed. And I think that the only way that a bill like Sylvie or Torpy's bill is going to be successful is you have to work with him and you have to incorporate a lot or most of his ideas into any of those bills. And even that I don't think is a sure thing. And I want to just be clear. I don't think that that would make Rob Schaff support that. And it wouldn't mean that he supports Medicaid expansion. But it's a, there is a possibility, as he told me, that if he does an analysis and all the numbers kind of work out to where it isn't expensive in his eyes, he may stand down from filibustering. Right. I want to be super clear on this. I don't want to convey the message that he is for Medicaid expansion if some of these things happen. He is absolutely opposed to it. And I think if you don't work with him, he's going to be a, a very potent obstacle 
So my question for like the Missouri Hospital Association and the Chamber of Commerce is, is it worse for, for hospitals to shut down when nothing happens? Or is it worse if you have a Medicaid transformation or reform bill that makes significant changes to certificate of need or price transparency? And I think in 2015, 2016, that I think will become an issue. This, this year, I just... I just don't see it. I, I think that gets back to what we've been saying for a while, which is that Medicaid transformation is a real long shot this session. Would you because say we so? Haven't, because we haven't reached any consequences yet. Yeah. We haven't seen rural hospitals shut down. But I think once those things start happening, I think that that'll definitely be a big incentive. What do you think, Marshall? Uh, I, I agree. And also getting back to the election cycle, even though uh, candidate filing has uh, has, right. has stopped – uh, there will still be people who will run for re-election or run for higher office on the Republican side uh, who will use um, their opposition to Medicaid expansion as something that they can campaign on. And sure. because this is an election year, I, I don't see much happening with Medicaid expansion, even with the, uh, the, 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 even with the uh, proposals being uh, sponsored by Representative Torpy and Senator Sylvie. Even uh, Senator Sylvie told me this afternoon he's, he even – Acknowledges that his uh, his newly crafted proposal is a long shot. Yes, but but it'll so, still be an issue, and it will still have an impact. I think we're just kind of talking about the real legislative mechanics here. So, so let's get to a bill that does stand a good chance of of becoming law, or I shouldn't say becoming law, but of passing. Marshall, yes, passing but not becoming law. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. So uh, this is Senator Nieves last year. In the Senate, he's going to run for recorder of deeds of Franklin County. But this uh, this this is kind of his uh, last hurrah. Tell us a little bit about the bill, Marshall. Well, um, actually, I'm going to tell you about his bill, and I'm going to tell you about Representative Funderburk's bill, yeah. um, which is which also got uh, some attention this week. The House actually perfected uh, their version of the Second Amendment Preservation Act. Uh, the, that's the one that's sponsored by. Uh, Representative Funderburk. You might um, know it as the gun nullification bill. The gun, yes, uh, the gun, as I call it, the gun control nullification bill, because yeah. it would not nullify it, it guns. It doesn't nullify guns, <laughs> yeah. I think the Democrats would actually like it if it nullified <laughs> guns. <laughs> That's a fair point. Um, in addition to it being Senator Nieves' last year, this is also Representative Funderburk's uh, yes, last he, year. And, and he is running he, for St. Charles County Executive against uh, Steve Elman. By the way. Interesting, yeah. Um, so it's this is he's term the Funderburk is term limited out, so this will be his uh, last hurrah as far as getting a, a major bill out. And it's I, I, at this point, I don't think the Republicans care a whole lot which version of the bill passes. But I should mention that um, the House version um, now has um, a, a, something significant as far as backing away from, I guess, what, what some would consider a very extremist move. Instead of, um, instead of mandating a, a Class A misdemeanor for federal officers who would enforce federal gun laws, uh, that's out of the House bill. Now it would just make them liable to being sued as opposed to uh, actually being thrown in jail or fined. So, which I suppose could actually be even more expensive than paying a thousand dollar fine. And so, you've talked about the the Class A misdemeanor, which of course that was in the bill that was passed last year, which the governor vetoed. I don't remember the vote count uh, during veto session. 
How how short were they? Does anybody remember off the top of their head? Well, it passed in the House by, I it, think, the exact margin. I think it was 109. Yes, and then it was. It, it failed in the Senate by, I believe, one vote. One vote I, or two votes. Well, there were only two uh, two no votes among the among the Republicans, and it was, was the top two, uh, yeah. Dempsey and um, and Richard. Which and uh, which one uh, pushed it over the or kept it from uh, being overridden? I'm not sure. I think it was uh, Dempsey Demp- because Richard had already announced yeah. that he wasn't going to vote for it. So, right. so, so, uh, Marshall, is there any indication that this change, changing it from uh, misdemeanor to just something that you can be sued for. Is that something that uh, there's any indication that either of those two Republicans would change their mind as a result of those changes? Uh, I've not heard yet uh, whether whether or not that would uh, you know tip the balance as far as a, a potential override uh, in September. But I'm guessing that that's what the that's what the thought was that, that maybe this yeah. will make it a little bit easier to digest if it does come down to a veto override. But at the same time. Um, you know, maybe a majority of the House members might decide just to, to pass uh, the Senate version, which is uh, Senator Nieves' bill, which uh, still has the uh, Class A misdemeanor uh, language for, um, for right. against federal officers. This is going to court, though, right, Marshall? Oh yes, uh, whichever uh, yeah. whichever version gets out, it will go to court. It will and, go to court, and, and, uh, and will likely pen- be thrown out on if, su- uh, based on the supremacy clause. Because right. it's nullifying. And that would only law. happen if um, a veto override were successful. Right. And it actually did become law. What, what do you, you know, I think often sometimes people accuse Republicans of passing, you know, gun and abortion bills in election seasons to gin up support or whatever. But do you see this like actually helping anybody or hurting anybody? Because, I mean, in, in, there are, in the three state senate races that i would consider competitive that are open seats uh, you know the the 10th district between ed schieffer and Jeannie riddle and then rorta versus whelan i i think that they all support the, the concept of all of this it just doesn't seem like if this is a way of trying to you know needle democrats it's it seems like it's going to work very well or, or do you think it's more of just people are passing this because they believe in it at this point Absolutely. I think that that's totally it because it was pushed so hard and so strong last year when, in a non-election year. Um, and this year they've come up with – they're trying to come up with a version that they think will uh, become law uh, regardless of whether it gets vetoed. They're, they're working really hard to actually make this a law as opposed to you know, championing something they know won't pass just to, just to you know, make themselves look good at the ballot box. Uh, now, I do think that does come into play uh, somewhat, but um, now keep in mind also that uh, there were, I believe, eight Democrats. Um, I'll have to have to look through my Twitter feed real quick, but I do believe there were eight Democrats that voted for this as well, and I do believe Jeff Rorta was one of them that voted yes uh, on this. But uh, don't hold me to that until yeah, I Yeah, and I don't know if, they, I don't know if Schieffer or Rorta voted on that. I know that they – I believe they voted yes on it during the regular session, and I, I – I don't remember how they voted during veto session. But, yeah, I, actually, I do have this in front of me right now, and um, I'm looking down the list here. And uh, actually, yeah, Rorda actually did vote yes uh, for uh, the Second Amendment Preservation Act, at least for the uh, the perfection of it yesterday. Oh. Uh, so, yeah, he did actually – he was one of the um, – I believe about eight Democrats that voted yes. And just as an aside in that race, since it is the D 
de facto number one race. It is it has struck me that both of those candidates are are trying to like match each other on some of these hot button issues. So on guns, they both are for something like this, but on unions, uh, Paul Wheland, who is a Republican, has voted against paycheck protection and. You know, I don't think there's been a vote on right to work, but I know that he's not for that. So for for such a high profile race, it does seem like both of those candidates have a lot of similarities. And which is why I think that race is going to come down to personalities and it's going to be pretty heated and ugly from my uh, prediction, because they've already run against each other in a House race and there's some bad blood there. So but that's an aside. So continue. All right. Well, Marshall, I know you have stories to get out and cover, so I think we'll have to cut it off there. But to close us out here, you can read all three of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at at csmcdaniel. Jason, you can be followed on Twitter. Jay Rosenbaum. Marshall, you can be followed on Twitter. At Marshall G. Report. Marshall, thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week. Until then, so long. So long.